0: This episode is brought to you by Health IQ. Health IQ uses science and data to get special rates on life insurance for health conscious people like cyclists. If you are listening to this show there's a high chance that you are an avid cyclist. If you are then support the show and check out Health IQ's life insurance rates specifically for cyclists. Learn more about what they can do for you at healthiq.com forward slash semi Yo, I'm Damien Roos. Today, how to lose fat, plan for a cyclocross series, and are dual suspension mountain bikes inefficient? you got a question about cycling, I got you covered. But if I can't find the answer, it doesn't exist. This is your cycling questions answered. If you're new to the show, here's the format. You ask a cycling question, I answer. It's as simple as that. So let's get on with question one, Damien, I've not heard from you in a while, so I'm hoping to elicit a podcast response for you so my friends and I can enjoy what research has been done on suspension and efficiency for cross-country mountain bike racing specifically. Does suspension always rob power from us on a strenuous uphill pedaling effort or is there some amount of active suspension that does not affect pedaling efficiency? I have not heard you discuss cross-country mountain biking racing much but I would enjoy hearing your thoughts on the subject and expect you are well positioned to know of the current research if any. Thanks for the question Randy. There definitely is a small set of studies that have been done in this area and they start way back in the 90s. So we're talking about really basic shocks here, like the RockShox Indie Fork. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but came out in 95, really limited control and travel. It used a MCU spring elastomer internal and the rear shock, a RockShox Deluxe rear shock absorber, a very simple coilover design. And I'm not sure if it had rebound or not, but we are talking the most basic of basic designs, pretty much. And although suspension technology and bike weights has changed, there were a couple of interesting findings which would work today. And while we are speaking about today, the last study I've got is from 2016. So I did go through a whole bunch of them, but I've picked out four of the most relevant and interesting studies that we can look at starting in 97 and working through to 2016. I'm not going to go into too much detail. I will read out the entire title so you can go and look a little bit further if one of these studies interests you. The first study is called The Effects of Mountain Bike Suspension Systems on Energy Expenditure, Physical Exertion and Time Trial Performance During Mountain Bike Cycling. A quick breakdown of the results from this study, subjects rode significantly faster on front suspension than full suspension or rigid during cross-country time trials. Cyclists incurred less muscular stress and heart rate when riding the front suspension and full suspension bikes and although the front suspension and full suspension weigh from 0.7 to 2.2 kilograms more than a fully rigid bike. No differences were observed in energy expenditure, and that riding the front suspension in a cross-country time trial resulted in a faster finishing time than the full suspension bike or a rigid bike. The second study, Effects of Front and Dual Suspension Mountain Bike Systems on Uphill Cycling Performance, was done in 2000, and the major finding from this study was that the cardiovascular performance was similar both on and off-road for front and dual suspension bicycles. But that power output was significantly higher on the dual suspension bicycle during the uphill cycling trials. So the bicycle type did not affect the time to complete each trial. It did not affect the oxygen cost or the heart rate response of the cyclists. Study 3. Effect of suspension systems on physiological and psychological responses to sub-maximal biking on simulated smooth and bumpy tracks. This was done in 2006. Combined data for the bump test show that the full suspension bike was significantly different from the hardtail bike on all four measures, oxygen consumption, heart rate RPE were lower and comfort scores were higher than average. The results indicate that the full suspension bicycle provides a physiological and psychological advantage over hardtail bicycle during simulated sub-maximal exercise on bumps. And the final study, Study 4, The Impact of Uphill Cycling and Bicycle Suspension on Downhill Performance During Cross-Country Mountain Biking 2016. This study showed a minimal advantage for a full suspension bike in the trial and they conclude that further investigations over a full race distance are warranted. My conclusion from these four studies is that, on average, there is no physiological benefit from using a full suspension bike. In fact, there may be a penalty of needing to produce more watts for the same uphill effort. So back to your question, Randy, and I can only answer the first part of it. Does suspension always rob power from us on strenuous uphill pedaling efforts? My answer is maybe. Maybe yes. Question two. I'm looking to reduce my body fat percentage in the off-season. What have you found to be the most effective way to do this? Of course, a combination of cycling, strength training, and good nutrition are important. Do you have any specific things for me to try? I find it difficult to lose weight when already training consistently. First up, there are no secrets when it comes to losing body fat. Everybody's different, so you just have to keep trying things until you find something that works for you. For me, it's all about being consistent with the food that you eat. I'm going to look at the calories in, calories out argument for this one, focusing on the nutrition aspects, but not about exactly what goes into your mouth, just the theory behind the composition and macronutrients consumed and how that impacts body composition, which is what you're referencing here, because it seems like you aren't concerned about weight loss per se, more about weight management for athletes, right? An interesting article on this topic was sent to me last week, which was really good timing. Thank you, Webby. It takes the simple idea of calories in, calories out for weight loss and puts them into context of body composition, exactly what is being asked in this question. First up though, I'm glad that you're losing weight in the off-season. This is the optimal time to do so. All other times of the season are so glycogen dependent that you're at risk of ruining your training and your overall well-being. Plus, the slow grind of the transition and the off-season are a perfect time to incorporate new habits that will hopefully be carried throughout the year and even longer than that. Starting with the basics, in order to lose weight, you must use more calories than you take in. If you do this, then you will lose weight over the long term, and this is often summarized by the term calories in, calories out, or C-I-C-O, Kaiko. The calories in side of the equation, your food intake, is the one you have the most control over and should be the focus of any weight loss strategy. The article that I was talking about, and I will reference a lot, is from this guy called Brian St. Pierre, and it it explains his take on calories and how he believes energy balance determines body weight, not necessarily body consumption. Calories can be seen as energy, and Brian sees that the energy in and energy out are not mutually exclusive. A change to one affects the other. Neither side is static." In theory, you expect your daily 500 calorie deficiency to lead to a weekly three and a half thousand deficiency, which should lead to one pound of fat loss per week. But this isn't how the body works. Once you start lowering intake, output gets lowered to account for that. And as you start losing weight, output gets lowered more because you're moving a smaller body around and due to adaptive thermogenesis. But it doesn't mean that all calories in or even all calories out are equal. And when we're thinking about what determines body composition, this is especially true. Body composition is ultimately determined by energy balance, macronutrient intake, age, sex, hormone levels, exercise style, frequency, intensity, duration, medication use, sleep quality, stress. You can see how many factors go into this. And this brings us back to the question of, is a calorie a calorie? On one hand, The answer is yes, it's a unit of measure. So, of course, a calorie is a calorie. On the other hand, not all calories consumed have equal absorption or digestion kinetics, cause the same hormonal response, or have the same effects on body tissues. If you ate 3,000 calories per day of highly processed foods versus 3,000 calories per day of protein, fibrous veggies, and minimally processed carbs and fats, the two intakes wouldn't necessarily have the same long-term outcome on body weight. And that is the crux of what we're trying to get out with this answer. The composition of the calories in would have differing impacts on calories out. Thermic effect of feeding would be higher, and the minimally processed foods intake and higher protein. As well, there would be fewer calories absorbed from the minimally processed foods. Thus, the minimally processed intake would result in more calories out and less calories in overall. Note. This is the classic argument about eating nutrient-dense foods over calorie-dense foods, or as Sid Gaza hillman would say, heavy box foods over light box foods. And it especially wouldn't have the same long-term outcome on one's body composition, especially due to the very low protein intake from highly processed foods, which would likely lead to lean mass loss over time. Not to mention the differences in micronutrient intake, likely impacting hormone status, energy levels, etc. So this all boils down to food quality and this is where the confusion lies. If you meet your calorie and macro goals in any way possible, you might in the short term be able to manage your body weight. However, there are other elements at play here for the long-term health, body composition, performance and quality of life. Fibre intake, phytonutrients, effects of food on gene expression, effects on satiety and satiation, enjoyment of intake for sustainability, and so much more. Note, what's interesting here is that if you're eating this way, you don't really need to focus so much on the calories in, calories out method, as you will be fuller with less. Minimally processed foods help to accomplish this in many ways. Generally less calorie dense, higher in water content, higher in fiber content, generally not hyper rewarding, generally not hyper palatable. Now you start to see the power of these minimally processed foods and how they can help you accomplish your long-term goals when it comes to body composition. So adding to the food quality... Quantity does also matter. For most people who aren't going to weigh or measure every bit of food they eat, food quality will actually impact food quantity for the reasons outlined above. It's the context of someone's entire intake that determines their body weight and body composition, not any one food. In the end, remember that while energy balance does determine your body weight, there are other important factors in addition to energy balance that determines your body composition and this includes losing fat. Simple, hey? But not easy. Stick around to learn how to plan a cyclocross season when you want to do well for the entire season and find out my top pick for road cycling gloves. That's after the break. This episode is brought to you by Health IQ. Health IQ uses science and data to get special rates on life insurance for health-conscious people like cyclists. Just like me, they are advocates of a healthy, conscious lifestyle. You work hard at staying fit. Why shouldn't you be rewarded with some financial benefits every now and then? You may already know the personal benefits of being a cyclist, feeling better in the morning maintaining weight easier all these great things that cycling gives you but maybe you didn't know that avid cyclists have a 45 percent lower cancer risk 18 percent lower heart disease risk and up to 28 percent lower risk of early death unfortunately though knowing these statistics and being someone that is in these categories doesn't always translate into cheaper life insurance and historically many cyclists get penalized for other things like family history bmi and other attributes but don't get rewarded for their health conscious lifestyle that's where health iq set out to change this they look at whether you're a cyclist or some other healthy way of living, they've found a way to negotiate with life insurance companies to get cheaper and better deals for you. And if you're listening to this show, there's a high chance that you are an avid cyclist. If so, support the show and just go and check out Health IQ's life insurance rates specifically for cyclists. Learn more about what they can do for you at healthiq.com forward slash semiprocycling. Welcome back to Your Cycling Questions Answered. Let's bump straight into question three. I have benefited immensely from listening to your podcast. I am a self-coached Masters 50-plus cyclocross racer. I follow a periodized training plan. This is base build specialization. I struggle with how to time the end of the eight-week specialization phase with my cross season. I have no specific A-race but want to do well in a local series that runs across 14 weeks. I do not race on the road, so I have complete freedom to adjust the timing of my training phases going into cross-season. Do I complete the specialization phase just as the cross-season starts and then try to maintain fitness across the 14-week season? Do I end specialization around seven weeks into the season, perhaps sacrificing some early results? Is there a better way to overlap an eight-week specialization phase and 14-week racing season?" I find that once racing starts, I can only perform one hard workout during the week, especially after weekends with Saturday and Sunday races. Thanks for your advice. Okay, so we have to look at a 14-week cross-season with no A-races And your goal is the overall series, so getting as many points in each race as possible. For those of you listening that aren't training or aren't experienced in periodized training plans, I'll try and remove some of the jargon and keep it as simple as possible so you can still get something out of this. But when we are looking at planning the training for a season, your annual training plan will look something like this. You'll have a base period of around four to 12 weeks where you're looking at building and tuning your aerobic base, your skills, your running. You would then move into a build phase, three to four weeks, where you're trying to build a higher order intensity, VO2 max, anything that's above threshold. You're still working on a bit of skills, but then you move into other things like fatigue resistance and running and things a little bit more. And then race prep racing is three or four weeks where you're trying to build even higher intensities, extend your fatigue resistance, and just race as often and as hard as you can. If we take the full time allowed to complete the season plan, that's about 20 weeks, 14 of which will be racing at some capacity. And you could just do four weeks before the season and then struggle through each phase until the end of the season. The problem with that approach is race weeks, of course, because on race weeks, you really only have two jobs between weekends of racing. The first one is to recover from the last week and then get ready for the next. And you're right, you don't have much time for training left and it really is... Is just Wednesday. So here's what I would do. First, decide where you want to be at your best. I know you said it's all season, 14 weeks, but it's really not possible is just to extend it for that entire time. You have about six to eight weeks of form that you can live off once you get through your base and build periods. Your peak cyclocross racing weeks are about coming into the weekend fresh, which means that not a lot of training during the week and after many weeks of that schedule, six to eight, like I said, you'll be out of this fitness and you need to reload. So pick something. Pick a course that you got a better chance of winning on or even the start of the season just to pick it that's when you start your race phase and the race and recover cycle and this is when you have the two jobs that i spoke about earlier recovering from one weekend and preparing for the next weekend of racing the only time you have to maintain some fitness of course is wednesdays like i said why because monday and tuesday are for recovery thursday may be an optional training day if you're racing only on sunday and friday is either recovery or openers Wednesday is your training day. But remember, you've only got six to eight weeks of this. After this period, you gotta mix it up a bit. If you wanna continue on, to December and beyond, you've got to find a weekend away from racing and lock in a 10 to 14 period where you can take a couple of days to heal up, get recovered, and then start doing some actual training again. You've got to get back into some threshold work. You've got to drive up your hours and work on your aerobic fitness again because you've just been working on intensity for those six to eight weeks. So do some long weekend rides, even if that means riding to and from a race or two. If you still can't decide where to start the race phase, you could just count backwards eight weeks from the end of the season. But I'd personally get to the race phase earlier than that and do a reset to see where you end up with fitness and results. Then you can adjust for the next year and that way you give yourself the best chance possible of having a consistent season over the entire 14 weeks. Well, as best as it's going to get. Okay, question four, the final question. What are some recommendations for nice short finger gloves? I'd like a small to medium amount of padding. So you're not looking for all-day gloves, big chunkers. I really like thin gloves as well, if I'm going to wear them at all. And I've got one pick here. I've gone through a whole bunch of different gloves. And here's my pick, the Grip Grab Ruler. 28 bucks euro, 30 bucks USD, 23 pounds, It's just a great all-round glove with comfort padding. It is suitable for shorter rides, but if you can handle it, you can go on long rides as well, of course, but it just doesn't give you that bulk in your palm and you can feel like you're really able to grip the handlebars well. It's constructed from lightweight, flexible materials like all gloves are, but they're pretty sexy looking. They're really minimal in their look. They're not too glary and over the top with any color choices and things. It's easy to wipe away the sweat, and the dirt because it's got a sweat wiper and it does have some reflective logos but again they don't stand out too much it's got the classic pull-off system and it's a velcro closure so it is very simple to get on and off that is my number one pick i could go through a whole bunch of different ones but truly that is the best one that's going to suit your needs you can go up from there of course if you wanted to get better padding but i would definitely start with this one and that's the show thanks for listening thanks for subscribing and ride well